you know, yeah, you're exactly right. We, we work with all these neurosurgeons and, you know, like the chair of internal medicine. These are like big deal doctors <laughs> with like 10 degrees and they're very intense and intimidating. But I just like to remember that at the end of the day, there are people too. Um, you know, and I treat them with respect. I call them doctor so-and-so and I you know, take the time to read about their work and do research. And so what they're, you know, what the meeting's about instead of just going in blind, but, you know, throwing in those little tidbits about, you know, asking about their kids if they happen to mention it and then remembering that for the next time, those things are important. Um, and I mean, even now, you know, I don't work at the hospital anymore, but like I said, I've built some really good relationships with some of the doctors there. Throughout this current run at Johns Hopkins, I've been blessed to work with so many brilliant people. And when you work a job with people that you really enjoy, it really helps a job that you may not think is your dream job. It really helps you fall in love with it. When you get to work with people that you just enjoy going and seeing every day, essentially they become like family. Well, today's guest is somebody whom I worked with for almost three years, and that is my good friend Chinapa. Chinapa and I spent a great amount of time laughing, making gifs. We even traveled to North Carolina for a conference. She would leave our team to go to the university where she stayed there for a few years, and after not being able to take it anymore, she finally left. So we talk about that. We talk about why she left the university, her next venture. We also have a good discussion about systematic racism that you can face in a workplace. And she gives advice on how to deal with it. So ladies and gentlemen, up next, my interview slash conversation with Chinapa. All right, ladies and gentlemen, as promised, on this episode, I have somebody who recently, about a little over a year ago, left me and my position. She went on to another part of Johns Hopkins Medicine, and now she's since moved on, and we're going to get into all of that. And that is the one and only Chanapa Tantaban Chachai. I messed it up, did I? No, you got it. <laughs> Just keep it in there. It's like a funny <laughs> non <-booter. laughs> Oh, hey. How you feeling today, Chanapa? Great. Thank I'm really honored that you're having me on. Thanks. Thank you. Um, man, it's what, four years ago we met? And um, one of the things I always talk about this, and I'll say it publicly, uh, I knew you were going to be cool when we met. And the first thing you said was, come on in my office. Let's sit down and talk. And I said, you know what? This is somebody, I, I, I'm a talker. So I knew that you would be a talker and we was going to get along just fine. Yes, that, it was a really good, I mean, relationship. I remember you always coming in, you know, nearly every day with my like lights off because I like it like a dungeon in there and we just talk shit. <laughs> yeah, you know, uh, it was like, I mean, and one of the things is we connected on was just uh, different things, culture. Um, 
being able to uh speak about things that's happening in the world unfortunate things you know just the way we grew up so um and like i said we'll get into all that uh how you feeling today i'm good i'm good i'm actually um in between jobs like you mentioned um earlier so i'm actually technically not i'm unemployed right now so it's great i'm just sitting around <laughs> <laughs> well unemployed but let's start from the beginning um when did you decide that you wanted to get into the science writing business um i would say towards the it wasn't actually until towards the end of college um so i went into college you know thinking that i wanted to be a doctor i think for a couple of reasons because I was good at science as far as I knew, and that seems to make sense. But I think largely because um, my parents immigrated here from Thailand and we didn't have a lot of friends or family. So you don't really, you know, you can't be what you don't see. So I didn't know a lot of like career paths that were out there. But like in Asian households, you know that doctors, engineers, and lawyers are like top tier jobs in their eyes. So I was like, oh, okay, I'll become a doctor. Um, but I went through college, I majored in biology, and it was all right, but uh, I never really enjoyed my science classes as much as I loved writing, like my English classes, and I did some internships, and just little things in college to keep me writing as kind of like a, you know, like an enjoyable extracurricular activity for myself, um, and so it wasn't until, I think, like, end of college that I was taking organic chemistry and I hated it so much. And I was like, I can't do another, you know, four to 10 years, you know, if you become a doctor, you do residency and all that, just focus on this type of stuff, I hate it. <laughs> but I love writing and I was really lucky I had an advisor that was, um, you know, really focused on different aspects of science, like not just hard science, but how you communicate science as well. So she kind of opened my eyes so the possibility that you could do that for a living. Wow. So what made you, so you said you like science, so that's why you chose that. Um, how long did you, were you, how much, I guess, through the course of action while you're in school, how much did you have to change up? Did you have to like change your major or were you already on the path to getting into the science writing? Um, so I didn't, I didn't change my major. So I graduated with the biology degree and then I actually stayed and did my master's in biology as well. Um, but I had done so many like side activities related to writing about science um, that it just kind of made sense that, you know, I had the training in biology, but I had the experience in writing about it. So then I just started looking for jobs in that realm. So it's kind of like a natural slide into science writing. Wow. So you talk about that part and um, science writing. Let's just call it for what it is. You know, you and I, we have a lot of honest conversations. Um, you're a minority in a lot of these uh, groups, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's it like a lot of times to be you know, the only Asian or one of the few Asians in the room that's a science writer and, you know, just trying to navigate that space? It's, it's real hard, uh, for sure. I think science writing in particular, like a lot of fields, right, it's, 
um, kind of there's like a pipeline problem. I think a lot of minorities have, uh, you know, or at least, and then, you know, in my immigrant family, you, the priority is getting a job that pays well and you can support yourself and your family, you know, and like my parents sacrificed so much for me to be here, for them to be here. It's just always a priority. Like, what am I going to do that makes it worth it for everything they've given up? And that includes like a practical job that makes sense. So I think a lot of minorities don't go into science writing because it's not very clear cut and there's not a huge promise of good pay and stability. So that's like one problem. And then once you do get in the room, you know, there's no one there that looks like you. So no one can relate to your struggles. Um, then you face a lot of discrimination along the way and there's like a lot of loneliness. Like there's no one really to talk to about it. Yeah, because I'll be honest with you, I never heard of science writing being a career till I went to Johns Hopkins. I obviously come back from a background in sports and news, and you hear about, you know, that you can get jobs writing for different websites or different fields, but I just always thought when it came to health and science that you just went to the... Um, you went to the newspaper or you went to the TV station and they say, Hey, this is your beat. And that's how you got into it. I didn't realize that you have full science writers writing for, you know, different um, organizations, different institutions. Yeah. There's, there's, there's like a whole spectrum to it. Um, I mean, even people that I know that understand, you know, that science reporting is a thing. They don't realize that, science writing at, you know, like at Johns Hopkins is a thing, you know, they think that a researcher does research and then a reporter somehow finds out about it and writes a news article. They don't realize there's a lot of steps in between. So, um, you know, like when I was there working with you, I was a senior media relations representative and my, the bulk of my job was reading those research manuscripts and distilling it, you know, say research manuscripts, like 30 pages, you turn it into an 800 word thing, and then it goes to reporters. So there's a whole long process to getting science news out there to the world. Yes, Lord. You know, um, <laughs> since you left, I've written a couple press releases. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, you just took me back, first of all, with that uh, reaction. Um, folks, a lot of times, when I would have a venting session in Chinapa's office or vice versa, that's, that would be the soundbite. Uh, we should have made that a soundbite. We got gifs out there. We just never made soundbites. Um, it's challenging. I, you know, when we created, in case you missed it, I had to read the press releases deeper and try to pick out something to how to tell a story. But that was already tough. Then when I got assigned a beat pulmonary in particular, having to read that uh, manuscript, shout out to our um, uh, the assistant director, Marin. She really showed me how to tackle it and sat down with me, but it's tough. And I remember after doing that, I went to our friend Rachel and Vanessa and said, I respect your job. I always respected your job, but I have a different level of respect for it now, considering <laughs> what I just did. That's funny now that you've done it. Yeah, yeah. And I think a lot of people don't realize, you know, it takes, it's a lot of work to read those papers and like even think about them. 
and try to understand them. But then it's such a, it requires so much people skills because then you got to work with your clients. So at Hopkins, you know, the doctors to go back and forth and come to agreement on how you're going to, you know, basically translate their years of work into one article. Yeah. Now, before we get to Hopkins, before you came, you was at the University of Utah. Yes. Uh, associate science writer. Can you talk about that experience? Uh, just, you know, is this your first job out of your master's program? Yeah, I actually, I was still doing my master's when I started working um, in Utah. Um, I was finishing up my thesis. So at that point, you're just writing a really long paper, <laughs> not taking classes anymore. And I um, landed that job and I made a deal with my advisors in school that, you know, I'll come back and uh, defend the paper um, in a few months, but I got to move to Utah to work <laughs> first. But yeah, it was my first, it was my first job out of college or I guess still in college. And uh, one thing I want to bring up is I read somewhere really early on, I think in my college career that women don't apply for jobs they think they're unqualified for that you know they're too critical of themselves because they don't think they match the job description exactly and so i took that really seriously and applied for a lot of jobs that on paper <laughs> i probably wasn't qualified for um the job at, at utah i actually had applied for a senior science writer job and i interviewed for it and they didn't give it to me but they liked me enough that they made that associate science writer position for me so i think it really goes to show that you just gotta sh always shoot your shot yeah always shoot your shot and i'm glad you said that a lot of people who listen to the show are college students who are looking you know for inspiration and you know i told you when i started this i'm blessed to be connected to a wealth of great people and i wanted to share my network with the world and so that's the reason why I was like, you know, I got to have Shanapa on because I know your story and I believe that somebody else could learn a lot from you, especially the process. Thanks. Yeah, yeah. So after Utah, you made a decision, packed up your bags, put it, uh, loaded up your car, drove cross country to the great city of Baltimore, Maryland. Yeah. Tell me that process. Oh, man. So I was at Utah for a while, uh, in like a year and a half, and I started doing um, senior level work, but for entry level pay. And I wasn't, <laughs> I wasn't too happy about that. So I applied for jobs all over the country, just kind of, you know, sh sh shoot my shot, shot of my shot, <laughs> whatever. Um, and Obi. Yeah, and Marin and Audrey are fearless leaders. Audrey's not at Hopkins anymore, but uh, she was part of the hiring team then, and you know how great she is. Um, really took a chance on me and gave me, you know, offered me a senior media rep position that, I mean, I couldn't turn down. And I remember I told my friend when I was thinking about moving across the country, and he said, you know, if you're serious about your career, you'll do this. Um, and I did. Wow. That's, you know, it's always good to have that friend. Um, that word, those words right there, you know what I mean? You can already tell, like, it was a challenge. It was, you, you're used to these challenges and he challenged you. How serious are you? And, you know, obviously you made a jump to a senior, um, 
it's a senior media rep position. Am I correct? Mm-hmm. And you know, the titles, I, I look, it's like, Hey, we all work together, <laughs> but, um, <laughs> can you talk about some of the challenges you had within like the first year and some of the ups you had in the first year of moving from, you know, from across the country and in the job itself? Yeah, yeah. Well, personally, you know, moving across the country, uprooting your life is really difficult. And I, you know, I was dating Eric, you know, Eric, <laughs> we're engaged now, but we have been dating uh, three years or so then. And, you know, we didn't break up, but I said, I got to take this job. You know, we'll figure it out. So I actually came out to Baltimore without him. So that was really tough. And I didn't have any family or friends out here. So it's really hard to just kind of establish yourself, especially as an adult, you, you know, it's harder to make friends. You're not in school, you're not, I mean, you basically, you have to make friends at work. Um, so that was really difficult for the first few months. I felt really lonely, but luckily, you know, you and all our, you know, our amazing team made that go away real fast. Um, in terms of a job, yeah, the environment was very, it was a huge culture shock. At the University of Utah, it's very laid back. You can work from home really casually, like people bike in at like 10. And I think a lot of faculty members work there for the quality of life. It's, you know, it's, you can go for a hike during your lunch hours, your lunch hour. Um, it's just a beautiful place. People are there to relax and hike and bike and do outdoors things. Um, at Hopkins, you know, every doctor wants to be in the New York Times. Everyone is very, things move so quickly and there's just so much more work to do. So it was a huge learning curve to adjust to that pace. One of the things that I always commended you on and getting a beat and doing media pitching later, I really see how hard it is is that you were able to land the New York Times, CNN, almost on a regular basis. And and I remember, shout out to our friend Archie, who has left us as well, Um, left the company, folks. Um, (laughs) She would always say that because, you know, Archie did a lot of the reporting and she, you know, saw a lot of what went out and what came in. And she would always say, you know, Chinapa's really good at landing this, uh, you know, landing top level media companies. How did you find that niche to be able to do such a thing? Teach the people, teach me. <laughs> As they say, ask it for a friend. <laughs> Give you my secret sauce. Yeah, I would say it's largely two things. I would say it's having really good relationships with uh, your clients. So in this case, the clients are the faculty members whose work you're promoting. Because honestly, you know, yes, they wanna be in the New York Times, but they don't realize that they need to reach out to you and tell you about stuff on the regular, you know, in advance. So you have to really build a strong relationship with them so that they remember you and tell you about those things so you can actually promote it. So, you know, you know me, I show up i'd always have my meetings with faculty and i'd become friends with them i'd bother them on twitter (laughs) i'm still friends with you know a decent amount of them now after i left um it's been what a year and a half two years now Mm -hmm. um so keeping those relationships alive and being really genuine about it and also just reading the news all the time i read the news every day 
and especially lately it's been extra stressful but <laughs> you got to do that to know what people what works and so then at that by doing that you know what stuff to promote and what's going to go viral yeah um that's just man that's so true um i want you to touch on building relationships and being authentic because even though a lot of people may not be into and I should say my not people. A lot of my audience may not be into the medical field as much as they are in the sports. I learned that doctors and researchers can be almost as intimidating as athletes. You know, some of the if you have a doctor who does brain surgery and he's like the top brain surgeon, well, he's gonna have a certain swag and confidence to him. The same way as trying to build a relationship with, say, a LeBron James or a Kevin Durant. So can you just talk about, because the reason why I say this is because I do believe that with your skill set, if you were a sports writer, you would be building those type of relationships. It wouldn't be with the 12th player on the bench. It would be, uh, you know, tell Eric that I said that you would have a close relationship with Donovan Mitchell. <laughs> <laughs> he's giving a thumbs up he's like, <laughs> um but how like what would you say is like key in doing that how do you i know you said being authentic and being real but what's like sort of the best way to go about that yeah yeah i always tell people i you know i've been asked this a couple times it's it starts off with a lot of reading the room you know i've there's some faculty you meet for the first time and you can tell they just want to, you know, get straight to business. They don't want to chit chat about where you had just been before this meeting or where you're going next. Um, so you kind of adjust yourself accordingly based on how they like to communicate. You know, you meet people where they are. And I don't think, I think that's being, you know, I think some people might say like, that's not being authentic, but I mean, that's just, you know, how you build relationships, right? You're not the same with every single one of your friends, you have to adjust to how they like to be communicated with and how what's gonna work most efficiently for your relationship. So doing that and I think going in and not being intimidated, like I think I, you know, yeah, you're exactly right. We, we work with all these neurosurgeons and you know, like the chair of internal medicine. These are like big deal doctors. <laughs> with like 10 degrees and they're very intense and intimidating but i just like to remember that at the end of the day there are people too um you know and i treat them with respect i call them doctor so and so and i you know take the time to read about their work and do research and so what they're you know what the meeting's about instead of just going in blind but you know throwing in those little tidbits about you know, asking about their kids if they happen to mention it, and then remembering that for the next time, those things are important. Um, and I mean, even now, you know, I don't work at the hospital anymore, but like I said, I've built some really good relationships with some of the doctors there. You know, and it's not like I have a calendar reminder for myself to reach out to so-and-so every quarter, but if I just think of them or I see that they've published something, you know, I'll ping them and say, hey, read this, loved it, miss you. Just little things like that, just keeping just keeping it alive. Yeah, I think that's really cool. I've, you know, obviously I see you tweet and, um, <laughs> you know, you, 
you in, engage with them and sometimes you post stuff and they engage with you. How do you, you know, I'm a big supporter of women empowerment. I believe that, and, and it also comes from one, I've, you know, I've always told you this. I was, I grew up in a woman, um, grew up in a, a family full of strong black women. That would then change to, or I should say morph into the workplace. My best managers, the best dual set, I put this on the record, has always been Audrey and Marin. Mm-hmm. best managers I've ever had. Um, same, same here. And yeah, and, you know, it's a, it's, it's a personal thing. Uh, and I've learned so much at the strength and watching them have a no take, don't take no shit, excuse my language attitude. That's very rare curse on my own <laughs> podcast. <laughs> but as somebody who was working, you know, you're a senior media rep not necessarily a manager or a director but you still had were tasked with responsibilities of going in and you said reading the room but a lot of times commanding attention and letting people know and being in a position of authority because you ultimately decide <laughs> if it gets written or not they want to put their research but if they come at you sideways you're like all right i'll write it but uh, i might not hit up my I'll friends <laughs> Yeah, I might not hit up my friends from the New York Times or CNN, mm-hmm. you know, but how did you go in there and really demand that, command that respect? Yeah, no, I've, I've definitely been tested <laughs> time and time again, you know, and I don't, you know, this is anecdotal, but I would say, you know, if I were a white man, I don't think I'd be tested as often as I've been, you know, and that's anything from the number of times you get pushback when you say no on something to how frequently clients will try to escalate stuff because they don't believe in your authority. They don't believe in your decision-making. Um, and, you know, I think this is a skill that Marin has helped me hone quite a bit, but it's really standing, knowing how to stand your ground in the most professional way to be like, you know, no matter how much you scream at me, and you know, I've been yelled at <laughs> by our cl- some of our clients, you know, I'm going to keep saying the same thing. I'm not going to budge just because you're upset. And I think along the way that gains you respect because they see, you know, oh, she knows what she's talking about and she's willing to stand up for it. Now, how do you, when, when you get yelled at, how do you bounce back and how do you, so in, in TV, there's always the saying, you mess up today, it's forgot about because you move on. You got to produce a whole new, another show. But one of the things I learned with, in science is some things take longer to process. You know what I mean? I didn't realize it could take 30 days to write a press release. I thought, mm-hmm. you know, with an article, you get your sources, boom, you write it, post it, you move on to the next thing. So it's something that's more long-term. How do you cope with that without going as far as you know letting that sting for so long yeah yeah that's a good question I I mean I'll be honest the very first time I truly got yelled at like on the phone by a client I cried I mean not to (laughs) you know I waited till I got off the phone first but I cried because it's hard to not take personally when someone is you know berating essentially the work that you're doing and um, your decisions. But 
I've learned to take a step back, you know, take a walk around the office, just not, not, I don't have to engage with the situation right away. Um, taking a breather helps me calm down. And then uh, it's hard, but just trying to remember not to take it personally because it's work and these people, you know, trying to understand where you're coming from, but they, it's really their babies, the work that they've done, the research they're trying to promote. So trying to understand why they would be so passionate. <laughs> that was a nice PR way of putting why they'd be so mad <laughs> and rude about it. Yeah, you, uh, you don't have to be PR. Yeah, <laughs> it's called pivoting away. <laughs> um, now trying to understand where they're coming from and then try and then I try to respond to them accordingly. You know, I'll say I understand, you know, that you are so eager to put this out because you you've spent so much time on this research. But here's what I'm dealing with. Because I think a lot of times they don't, they don't realize that a press release can take, you know, four plus weeks. They don't know that there's three editors involved and you have to fill a form out to get those edits even. They, they too think, you know, oh, I talked to Chinapa. She wrote a story. Why isn't it out in a week? And they also don't know your workload. And you don't, you don't have to vent to them. Um, you know, be like, I'm working on 20 press releases and <laughs> I don't, you know, do you understand the pressure I'm under? You don't do that. But I think if you, it takes time and it takes a lot of effort to explain to them politely, you know, like, this is what we're up against. I understand what you're saying, but I'm doing my best. Um, that approach has always gotten them to calm down and create a better relationship in the long run. Yeah. Talk about... Yeah, the time you first, I guess to say the first time you got a New York Times uh, article, you have, you know, the first time you got the cover. Oh, man, I, don't, <laughs> I feel bad because I don't remember which one. <laughs> oh, excuse me. No, I just, it's, I, I feel like it's been so long. I don't remember. <laughs> no, I just, um, no, it feels really good. What, you know, New York Times or whatever big hit. I've gotten. It feels like, you know, my uh, my gauge on the news is accurate. It feels like I'm a good writer and that someone picked up on what I wrote. And it feels really good because the faculty member, your client, is very happy and, give, you know, gives you that recognition of the work you did to get them into the New York Times. Um, so whenever those things happen that, you know, made all the hard work and all the getting yelled at, whatever kind of melt away and kept me going. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, the reason why I brought it up because I remember seeing a lot of the papers in, in the papers <laughs> in your office. Yeah. So um, when you look back at your time with us, what would you say was your highlight, the highlight of your career as a uh, senior media rep for Johns Hopkins Medicine? Oh, the highlight of my career. I was, <laughs> and I hope he's listening. I would say working with Joe Sacrin. Because, <laughs> uh, uh, you know, Joe, so I don't, I don't know if your viewers are listening. Joe Sacrin is a trauma surgeon at Hopkins Medicine. And he started, I think, the same month that I started working at Hopkins. So he was really new, too. 
And I remember the first media request I got from him for him was from the, you know, like the local paper from the town he had moved from. Mm-hmm. You know, he, they wanted a quote from a patient whose life he saved. And he didn't even have like a faculty profile picture <laughs> on his, you know, on the, in the directory yet. And he was so kind. And I was just like, who's this guy? Um, but Joe Sacron turned out to be, you know, he's a trauma surgeon. But not only that, he's been shot in the neck <laughs> and survived it. And, you know, and trained with the surgeons that saved him. He has this whole like lifetime movie go situation going on um and we we did a lot of stuff together you know we did a lot we did a cnn profile together so i spent a lot of time with him with all the tv crews that were interested in him um so it's twofold because you know there was a lot of success in promoting him but also he's just such like a kind person that he was easy to work with like you wanted to work Joe, you know that Joe's Joe's just a good guy, so you know it makes work easy. I'm so gonna highlight. I'm gonna add to that. Um, you know the situation with the people for new listeners out there. If you didn't look at any of the graphics and you can't tell by my voice, I'm a black male living in America, and he reached out to me, and I have to say it meant a lot just to see how I was doing with everything going on. And he said, even though he has immigrant parents, he looks like a white man. So some of the things that, you know, some of the racial injustices that you and I may be subjected to, not so much for him, but for him to take time to do that. He trusted me uh, to come down. I think I told you about this To He was given grand rounds at where he was, um, the same hospital, which he was treated at. And he asked me to come get some videos and pictures. And, you you know, a lot of times you have people, when they're around their peers and stuff, they may act a different way. Mm-hmm. Not him. You can see that the same way, the same relationships that you and I had built with him, other people had with him. And you, yeah. you could just imagine, it was as if a red carpet was laid out for him. Yeah. So that was pretty cool. Uh, so you made a decision. (laughs) (laughs) We're getting into it now. (laughs) Yeah. You made a decision in, was it 2018? November, 2018. Well, I guess October that you was ready to do something different. Can you just talk about the process and ultimately, you know, what made you change it and say, all right, it's time to move on. Man, well, I'll just, I'll start off the bat that it was a mistake <laughs> leaving you guys, you know, so I just want to set that, set the tone there. <laughs> but no, I think, you know, the workload was so intense. Um, and it was getting to a point where I was covering like at least 10 departments um, and writing, you know, 10 press releases, dealing with 60, 70 media requests a month. And I'd come home. And you know, that job is 24 seven, you know, you work at the doctor's schedule and the reporter's schedule. So you get calls at 9 p.m. And, uh, you know, radiology is yelling at you because you gave a CNN interview to um, urology instead. (laughs) And you're like, man, I'm just, I'm trying to wind down and go to bed here. Um, You know, I get home and I just stare at the wall and I'd be so drained. Um, And that's kind of what got me looking at other jobs. 
but then I got an offer to work on the university side of Hopkins. So, you know, for people listening, there's Hopkins, the health system where Brian's at and where I was at covering all the clinical stuff. And then there's like school public health. They have their own communications office. And I left to go to the university office, which covers things like engineering and physics and uh, like biology. So I left um, November, yeah, right, November 2018 to go work for on the university side. Yeah, so, yeah uh, mm-hmm. I, I remember, shout out to you and uh, friend Bia, y'all brought donuts in for everybody. Yeah, too many, <laughs> we overestimated for sure. So you mean tell me I could have took like three or four on my way to Chicago? Yeah, there were like three or four, <laughs> like at least boxes left over. I was yeah, like... <laughs> I was trying not to be greedy. You know, that was the thing um, that, you know, we would do a lot of times. One thing we ate, we definitely ate a lot. I, uh, when we hit 10,000 followers on Twitter, I brought in donuts and I was trying to like hide them because I knew I I wanted the team to get them first. That's funny. Yeah. But of course, somebody at the front desk had to pick up the phone. Brian just brought in donuts. I'm like, really <laughs> like come on <laughs> I, I guess i should have waited and went at lunchtime and it, like went at lunchtime and came back and brought them yeah we ate a lot i got my first chicken boss with you remember yeah um which one wait was it uh, it was northeast northeast okay i couldn't remember if it was northeast or um the other place that's gone now uh what was the place we thought we get the group on for oh um oh, andy's okay. uh, andy's yeah yeah andy's that yeah. was He's gone now. And I was like, God dang it. Yeah, <laughs> you, yeah. d- those, those definitely clutch. Um, but, you know, we, the, the best part is, you know, even though you left, we were able to create, you know, lifelong friendships and bonds, you know, and, and essentially I always said like, it was truly a family. If you look on, I have a Google home and in my rotation is actually a picture of you, me and Marin when we were at the, um, Christmas party and yeah. there's multiple pictures from like the Nobel and all that other stuff but you know talk about your time with the university and you know some of the challenges over there yeah so I ended up staying at the university for just a year and a half I actually just quit today's we're recording July 30th I quit on the 10th <laughs> um, so I didn't stay very long and I faced a number of issues there, but largely I would say a lot of like systemic racism to be blunt. Um, I even told them that. <laughs> um, you know, and Brian, you know, when I was with you guys, I was doing work on the level of taking those CNN crews through the OR, you know, working with Joe on those high profile, high caliber things. I was, you know, writing all the, I, I could handle a lot and the quality of my work was excellent. And then I came to the university and I got a really disproportionate amount of like housekeeping work assigned to me compared to other people. You know, so I then all, all of a sudden I'm doing things like, Chanaba, can you make this Excel sheet? Or can you organize this Google Doc? You know, and I don't think it's cocky to say like I was capable of doing more and I wanted to do more. But, you know, I was, uh, one of only two non-support staff that were people of color in that office. Um, mm-hmm. I think that says a lot. <laughs> How do you deal with that in the workplace? How do you, 
stay sane, especially in the state of the country right now. When you think about everything that's going on, it would be nice to say by the time this podcast comes out, things would be different, but <laughs> that would be, uh, you know, it's funny. I was listening to um, Michelle Obama and Barack Obama's uh, podcast, well, Michelle Obama's podcast featuring Barack Obama. And yeah. she, kept, <laughs> she kept calling him, um, say he was so optimistic about everything that, yes, we can, man. <laughs> and so, you know, I would like to have that type of op- uh, optimism, but in the event we don't, how did you, like, how did you deal with that, especially as we saw a shift in the country at the unfortunate murders, can't call it an accident, um, can't call anything else, the unfortunate murders of Breonna Taylor, who still, her um, killers still haven't been arrested, and murders of George Floyd, whose killers still haven't been convicted. How did you deal with that being in a place where you're dealing with systematic racism? It is damn hard. <laughs> I don't know I'll ever have a good answer for it, but yeah, it, it drains you every day. You wake up knowing the value you have in yourself and what you're capable of doing. And, you know, the people that are in power don't see it and don't allow you to perform at your fullest potential. And when, you know, eventually, you know, I spoke up pretty frequently and I spoke up at first, you know, doing that kind of, couched language doing it in the um socially acceptable way you're not gonna come straight out and say you're racist Mm because of white fragility right like you you gotta play their game and i say oh i have the bandwidth to do this type of work moving forward i would love it if you involved me in these projects that you have not involved me in really interested in expanding my portfolio blah 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 Um, And when that didn't work, you know, I was pretty blunt with them pretty frequently. I said, there's a pattern, a systemic pattern here that you need to address, that you have to recognize it first, and then you have to do something about it, because this type of bias, you know, takes conscious, consistent effort to combat and um, nothing came of it, obviously, which is why I left. <laughs> and I have a great opportunity ahead of me. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I would say, you know, you, as a minority, you're always doing these types of mental calculations, right? Like, is it, like, is it worth saying anything? And how aggressive should I be? You know, what, what's the return on investment of me speaking up? Like, is there gonna, are there gonna be consequences? is me speaking up gonna actually make it worse for me (laughs) or improve things? And I was at the point where I don't think it could have gotten any worse. And, um, you know, I think speaking up is always valuable. And I've been reading uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates this past week and he wrote something that really spoke to me. He said, you know, even if you're standing and the waves are crashing down on you, and you know, no, like no one can hear you. There's meeting and just screaming at the waves, even if they drown you out. Like screaming and saying your truth has meaning on its own. So I really believe in that. You know, you just gotta speak up for yourself, even if sadly nothing might happen. Wow, that's deep. Throw Tanahisi out there. Yeah. Um, you know, so it's different. 
but it's more parallel. I read, I just finished reading this book called Staying in the Game, the playbook for beating workplace sexual harassment by my friend Adrian Lawrence. And the thing I learned in that book was when it comes to sexual harassment, it's not just touching. It's not just making comments and sexual harassment is never done because of sex. It's done because of power. Uh It's done to keep you at a certain level. And a lot of things with racism I've learned is it's not always direct. You know, it's not always somebody, for me, it's not somebody coming up straight and calling me the N-word. Yeah. It's not somebody going at you and just talking about the way you look. It's not letting you do things, not listening to you while you're trying to speak up about something, not valuing your opinion. That's what people got to understand. You know, so I was, I was, you know, I'm glad you did speak up. And quite frankly, you know, you being my friend, I'm glad you got out of there. Uh, it sucked that you left us. <laughs> but, <laughs> you know, I, I'm definitely glad you got out of there. What would you say when you look back at your career so far? Because you're still, you know, still fairly young. But what would you say was the glass breaking moment? The moment you broke through and realized, I'm really good at what I do. Hmm. Yeah, I honestly, I would say probably getting the job with you guys, that senior media rep role that... You know, because I was, like I said, I was working that entry-level position before, and it was my first job, and they had me do, I was writing press releases, but they also had me doing things like writing little student profiles and, you know, making an inter-department newsletter, and, you know, it made me feel like, is this all, you know, will I have to do this for 10 more years before I could do the work I really want to do that I know I'm good at? And the fact that Audrey and Marin saw in me what I felt in myself, you know, across the country and gave me that chance, that really made me feel like, wow, okay, like I can do this. You know, this is, (laughs) this is happening. And for people out there, especially, you know, in our field, in all media fields, it's not um, abnormal to move across the country for a job so what kind of advice would you give to people um or something that you wish you would have known when you were moving just in that process Hmm, i would say keep that energy you know when you move somewhere at the very at the very beginning you have all this energy you look up all the things in your new city that you're gonna do and all these meetups you want to join Um, but it quickly, you know, life grinds at you and you start working (laughs) and you come home and it's six and you don't want to go to that meetup or you don't, you don't want to check out that park that everyone talks about. I would say try to keep that energy for as long as possible. Um, because once you let it go, you're not, you know, you're missing out on a lot. You're missing out on, you know, Baltimore is a great city. And I've discovered so much. It has a terrible, like, people give it such a bad rep, but it's a beautiful city. Um, I'm so glad I moved here. And, you know, I'm, I've been here four years now and I'm still like, learning new things every day. And I feel like probably 
too slowly because for a while I just got so caught up in the daily grind of life, you know, and just doing things to pay the bills and go to bed. Um, but yeah, keep that energy and move somewhere and just hit the ground running and meet as many people as you can and do as much as you can. And before we get out of here, um, you're, you are the GIF queen on Twitter. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, we even went to North Carolina because of your GIFs. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Let the people know where they can follow you. Yeah. So I'm on Twitter. My handle is Chinapa underscore T. I'm very active. Um, I'm about to start at the FDA. So maybe, (laughs) maybe I'll go (laughs) dark soon uh, with all my hot takes, but no, I'm on there and you know, you can follow me for the latest science news, health news, um, soon to be FDA announcements whenever I get into them (laughs) and a lot of sass. A lot of sass. I'm definitely looking forward to it. Shanapa, as always, it's always a pleasure. I'm glad we got a chance to talk and have this conversation. Uh, like I said, you have a great story and I want people to you know, I want people to hear it. I want people to be able to understand that, hey, you're thinking about taking that job across uh, country. You could do it if you are dealing with systematic racism. This is how you handle it. And I, and I appreciate you coming on and taking your time to talk about this. Yeah, for sure. Thank you so much. And, you know, I'll just leave off to cap all that, you know, summarize all that. But if you want other people to invest in you, you got to, you know, make that investment in yourself first. You got to believe in yourself. So that's probably my biggest, my hottest tip. <laughs> Y'all heard what she said, folks. Invest in yourself. All right, ladies and gentlemen. That was my interview with Chinapa. I really hope you enjoyed this as much as I did. Next week, I speak with somebody who I recently connected with via social media during the pandemic, and that is the one and only Miss Keisha Swafford. Keisha is a writer and a sports journalist. So very excited to get a chance to talk to her about her journey. So make sure you tune in. Remember, folks, season two, we coming back bigger and better than ever before. Do not let anybody set up a ceiling that you can't break through. This podcast was recorded and edited by B Waters Productions. The music by Hypno Beats. Make sure you follow him at Hypno Beats.